0: Hello, and welcome to ROI Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, What is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Brett Menard, and this is the 495th show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Dr. Edward Wilson Lee, 1596 fellow at Sydney Sussex College in the University of Cambridge, who's going to talk to us today about his book, The Catalog of Shipwrecked Books, Christopher Columbus, His Son, and the Quest to Build the World's Greatest Library. Joining us for the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. To begin, welcome to the show, Edward.
1: Thank you very much for having me on.
0: We like to call this first segment Farouk Danarin, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So can you start us off about what the catalogue of shipwrecked books is?
1: So uh, the book is a biography of the bastard son of Christopher Columbus, the younger son of Christopher Columbus. Uh, who is very little known, but was himself uh, an extraordinary figure. He was a sort of early modern Renaissance polymath. Um, He wrote the first biography of his father, and much of what we know about Columbus, and much of the myth of Columbus that fascinated people for so so long, uh, comes from Hernando's biography of his father. But he also had extraordinary projects of his own, which were in many ways designed to try and prove himself to be his father's true son, even though he was an illegitimate child. Um, And perhaps the, the central one of these was his project to build the world's greatest library, which he envisioned as a library that would contain a copy of every book in every language on every subject from within Christendom and without so the the book is a biography of, of Hernando and his, his life uh, and times, uh, and his many projects, um, of, of which this, this universal library project is, is the central one. So that's the, that's the core theme of the book.
0: So you said uh, Hernando was um, the illegitimate son of Columbus. What sort of relationship did he have with his father?
1: all the evidence is that they had a perfectly close relationship that uh, uh, Columbus didn't think of Hernando uh, any less fondly or, or, or uh, care for him any less than the older illegitimate son Diego. Diego would go on to inherit the family fortune, such as they were but um, Columbus uh, uh, at least attempted to provide for Hernando very well in his will and it was Hernando, rather than uh, his elder brother Diego, who went with Columbus on his fourth and final uh, voyage to the New World. So, Hernando, um, at the tender age uh, of 14, uh, set sail with Columbus on what was to be Columbus's final voyage uh, across the the Atlantic. And so, Hernando spent uh, the years 1502 to 4 with his father in some extraordinarily trying and difficult and dangerous circumstances. So in many ways, he was much closer to his father than his uh, his legitimate brother was. Um, certainly, again, the, the entire question is a somewhat vexed one, in part because so much of what we know about uh, Columbus is down to what Hernando tells us about him. And it, towards the end of the 19th century, around about the 400th anniversary of uh, Columbus's 1492 voyage uh, across the Atlantic. Historians began to become much more interested in in what they could find of Columbus's own writings, his own letters, and, and since then we've learned a lot more about Columbus, uh, the, the person who he actually was, a much more complex uh, and in many ways less heroic person than Hernando portrayed him as in his biography. But so much, even with the recovery of much of that material, so much of what we know of Columbus, it comes from Hernando's biography of his father, and Hernando obviously idolised his father um, and desperately wanted to uh, preserve his father's memory and to, to rescue his father's memory from the rather, um, uh, you know, the, the rather dangerous time that Columbus, Columbus's legacy and his memory and his reputation suffered in the decades after his death. Again, we we tend to forget that. Uh, Columbus, the kind of the great myth of, or the great myth of Columbus as as the hero of uh, this period of the age of exploration and uh, of a kind of uh, sort of inspired figure was very much a 18th, 19th century um, romantic and and American uh, myth building process. And that actually during his lifetime there was much more mixed feelings about him. Um, But you know, insofar as uh, as his legacy was preserved, it was it was down to Hernando. So again, knowing what their relationship is like is is down. You know, it's, it's complicated by the fact that we only have Hernando's word for a lot of it.
0: Well, and you mentioned that uh, Christopher Columbus kind of found himself at odds with uh, the uh, Spanish royal authorities. Did any of that? Um, happened with Hernando as well, or was he insulated from some of those uh, issues?
1: So, um, Hernando, uh, because of, despite being illegitimate and despite being a reasonably low um, social class in terms of who his mother was, and even who his father was, grew up at the Spanish court uh, and was well known to the Reis Católicos, the, the Spanish you know, Ferdinand and Isabella, and, and was uh, reasonably um, well acquainted with, with Charles, um, Emperor Charles V, um, but of course that did not insulate him from uh, the, the, the vicissitudes of the Columbus family fortune. So, just uh, for the listeners who don't necessarily remember this from uh, grade school history classes, Columbus was granted extraordinary privileges over whatever he discovered when he dis- went, or you know, whatever he encountered when he sailed. West in 1492, there was a, a, an agreement between him and the Reyes Católicos called the Capitulaciones de Santa Fe, um, and this basically said that Columbus had enormous rights of, uh, uh, you know, economic rights and political rights over what he came whatever he came across. It became increasingly clear. Uh, in the years following 1492 that what Columbus had stumbled upon was enormous and that the Spanish monarchy couldn't possibly stand by their agreement because it would probably make Columbus considerably richer and more powerful than they were. So during the rest of Columbus's life and indeed Hernando's life, uh, there was a constant battle and a back and forth uh, during which the, you know, the Spanish monarchy tried to roll back on some of those agreements and, uh you know, Hernando and his brother and and, uh, and Columbus himself uh, during during his lifetime desperately tried to cling on to some of uh, those privileges which they felt were rightfully theirs. So Hernando was very much part of that. Um, you know, that was a central part of Hernando's life, and and he wrote his biography um, of his father in a sense in order to try and protect his father's legacy and protect his father's reputation as the as as he discovered it as he considered it, discoverer of the new world at a time when even you know even that fact was even that central fact was being contested
0: well we have a lot more to talk about so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show this is roi on kala st ambrose university 106.1 fm
1: Catch up on your favorite SAU produced podcasts by going to KALA Radio at SoundCloud now. At a time when misinformation is all too common on social media, we take great pride in bringing you the news that matters, that impacts your family, news you can trust. Local broadcast journalists bring you the facts, covering the stories breaking in our community and across the globe. Text radio to 52886. And let Congress know you depend on local journalism. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters.
0: Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant for today's world? My name is Brett Minard, and this is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Edward Wilson Lee, 1596 fellow at Sydney Sussex College at the University of Cambridge, and we're talking about the catalog of shipwrecked books, Christopher Columbus, his son, and the quest to build the world's greatest library. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. Rick, why don't you start us off?
1: Thanks, Rhett. Edward, the um, title of your book uh, starts off the catalogue of Russian books. What does that mean? Yes, so um, uh, Hernando, as I said in the last segment, um, you know, he, he, as well as being Christopher Columbus's bastard son and, and attempting to save his father's reputation, he had his own extraordinary epochal project, which was to build the greatest library in the world. And his story is really one of a previous information revolution and a big data challenge. The, his library was extraordinary in part because uh, he was one of the first people, if not really the first person, to recognize uh, the potential of print and to uh, construct a library that would be centered around printed books and, and collect printed books. Most collectors of the day considered printed books to be kind of ephemeral and unimportant and only collected manuscripts. So he had an utterly enormous library by the standards of the day, but he recognized that having that much information was not only potentially useless, but even dangerous if you didn't have a way to organize it. So actually, Hernando's greatest achievement was to think through how you would organize um, a print library, a library of... Uh, his, his library had 15,000 books. It doesn't sound that big by by today's standards, but it's an order of magnitude bigger than the other largest libraries of the day. And so he drew up all sorts of catalogues um, to try and organize this information. We can certainly talk about those later. But one of them uh, is the rather poetically titled Memorial de los Libros Naufragados, uh, or Catalogue of Shipwrecked Books. Uh, This was a catalog of books that he bought in Venice um, in the year 1521 and which were uh, shipwrecked uh, on the way back from Italy to Spain. And he kept the catalogue uh, with the intention of reacquiring every book that had been lost. But, you know, it sort of intended to be poetically uh, symbolic of the Sisyphean, you know, impossible task that he had conceived, because as print got going and the number of printed books grew and grew and grew exponentially, the... Uh, the, the possibility of actually acquiring every book in the world became one that swiftly was kind of getting out of the, the realms of possibility. So the catalogue of shipwreck books is, I suppose, um, uh, an evocation of that uh, that noble, and yet ultimately doomed uh, task that he undertook. Okay, Ed.
0: Um, yeah, as always, Edward, um, who was underwriting this project?
1: And it's, it's a very good question, um, and I mentioned a little bit of uh, in the last section the, the, the changing fortunes of the Columbus family. So Columbus left to Hernando a, a very uh, tidy fortune in his will. Unfortunately for Hernando's um, purposes, uh, Columbus's will was basically a fantasy. He left to lots of people lots of money that he didn't actually have. This was money that he hoped if the Spanish government stood by their agreements uh, about the Columbus family right over the new world. Uh, would, uh, you know, would eventually emerge. Uh, In the event of there are certain times during Hernando's life where he had a very comfortable uh, income, other times it would disappear entirely. Uh, And being a a bibliomaniac and one entirely off uh, after my own heart, um, a lot of the time he bought the books on credit in hopes that, you know, the money would eventually show up. He sent the bill to his older brother in hopes that his older brother would pay. Uh, and so on, and so forth. But yes, often he was, uh, you know, dest- you know, not quite destitute, but he was he was broke. Though he was running out of money. Towards the end of his life, he did convince uh, Charles V, the Spanish Emperor, to take an interest in the project, and uh, he had an annuity which helped to pay for the project. But it nowhere near covered the amount of uh, you know the, the funds that were required. So yes, part of this is a Sicilian project in the sense that Hernando was constantly trying to have to find money to make it all work.
0: So let's uh, continue to mind that vein. When he's getting all of these books, where is he getting them from? Are these just uh, books that are passing through Spain, or is he sending people out to different places to gather books
1: for him? Yeah, that's a very good question. So, no, his um, his library was intended, as say, to be universal. Um, And Spain was not really the center of print. The center of print, um, the the kind of print world, was an axis that ran, uh, or a kind of crescent shape, uh, that ran from the the Netherlands, Antwerp, uh, around there, through Germany, down through Switzerland, Basel, uh, and into northern Italy, Florence and Venice. Um, Those were the, the centers of the print world. And Hernando bought an awful lot of his books on two extraordinary shopping sprees um, during the years uh, 1590 to 21 and 15, uh, sorry, 1520 to 22 and 1529 to 31. Um, he went on two, you know, uh, unbelievable book shopping sprees during which he often bought, bought um, you know, hundreds of books a day. Uh, he, you know, as, as with every kind of book lover's dream, he would go into bookshops and simply say, give me one of everything. Um, so he he bought almost all of the books in the library in his lifetime, he, he actually bought in person. Obviously, he wanted this to be a project that would continue ad infinitum, that would, would continue forever. So in his final years, he was designing um, a, a very complex system which would essentially... Uh, uh, farm out the buying of these books to agents in six principal cities who would be in charge of acquiring books from their cities and the neighboring cities uh, and sending them back to um, to southern France and then down uh, along the trade routes to Medina del Campo, which is one of the major trade fairs in Spain, and, and so on from there down to Seville, which is where he eventually built the physical building that would house, house the library. Rick? You mentioned the He bought this catalog of shipwrecked books in Venice, and then he went out and probably was the one that was buying these books. Did he have a master plan, or did he see a book and didn't care what the title was? He bought it and just like harvested every book that he could uh, lay his hands on. So it, it didn't start out. Um, with uh, you know a view to universality, you know he was obviously always a bibliomaniac, and he bought very large numbers of books from an early stage. Um, but uh, you know, so for the, the books from his earliest years, he spent the years fifteen oh nine to um, eleven in, in in Rome, and he was buying books there obviously out of personal interest. Around the kind of fifteen teens, the middle of the fifteen teens, or certainly by the fifteen twenties. Um, when he goes on this first big book shopping spree, it it definitely has taken on, uh, you know, these proportions where he's trying to buy a copy of of everything. So it gets to the point where he actually, in in a sense, um, doesn't, you know, he's buying so much that negotiating with the booksellers over each individual title becomes impossible. So he actually reaches a deal, a kind of wholesale deal with a lot of booksellers um, in in Venice uh, to simply, they add up the number of pages, and um, they charge him by the page. So he says, uh, that's how many books he's buying. Um, they—they they, they He doesn't even really have time to properly consider every book he's looking at. Ed?
0: Yeah, um, back to the financing of this project. As it went on, uh, were there other benefactors that got wind of his quest um, and help to bankroll him and spread the word, or did this remain a solitary
1: pursuit? No, it was very solitary. Um, so, again, to a lot of Hernandez contemporaries, his, his project was insane. Um, they didn't understand, as I sort of mentioned before, a lot of other book collectors of the day, you know, there was obviously a lot of great book collections of the day, but they were all focused on collecting rare manuscripts of lost Greek and Latin classics that, you know, a single copy of could be found in a Swiss monastery or something like that. Most people considered print books, uh, and especially, you know, Hernando was not just interested in in, in print books. He was even interested in the cheapest, you know, pamphlets, the forerunners of... um, news reports and cheap ballads um and uh you know almanacs and, and you know little kind of prognostication things that purported to be able to tell you what was going to happen during the next year and things like that he bought everything and to most of his contemporaries this was insanity it was he was collecting essentially rubbish um, but hernando increasingly you know with, with that kind of confidence that only uh, visionaries have. He increasingly embraced the fact that no one understood what he was doing, mm-hmm. and to him, this I think made him a, a lot feel a lot closer to his father. So Columbus, certainly during his later years, um, descended into a kind of prophetic insanity, uh, where basically uh, he thought he, you know, was was chosen, fated by history for a certain role that no one else understood. Um, you know, it's it, this story that eventually. Uh, comes into the great kind of myth of, of, of Western exceptionalism, you know, where uh, they all laughed at Christopher Columbus when he said the world was round. Of course, Columbus wasn't remotely the only person to think the world was round, but this idea of Columbus as the kind of visionary who saw someone saw something that no one else did was, was central to Columbus's visionary himself. It was central, central to Hernando's vision uh, of himself, uh, and he actually erected a, um, uh, a plaque above the entrance of his library in Seville to celebrate this. For which he wrote um, a, a kind of little uh, a little message. So his library in Seville was built um, on a site that he bought that used to be a former dung heap where they would uh, throw out all the the refuse of the city. Uh, and Hernando, you know, kind of particularly proud of uh, of the symbolism of this, wrote a, a plaque for above the door which essentially said, "I have founded my um, my library uh, on the dung heap because I." Uh, see the worth in which uh, in things which other people throw out. So again, he had this kind of um, conception of himself as as a visionary, and, and you know it, he was essentially alone in this. No no one else took any interest. As I say, towards the very end, the idea of a universal library started to appeal to a, a Spanish monarch who saw himself as a potential universal monarch. So Hernando did manage to sell it to him as a sort of universal library for a universal Empire uh, but among his other contemporaries he, he was you know virtually uh, he was completely misunderstood and, and, and not um, not supported at all
0: so when I think of my own personal collection of books and any number of professors offices that I have frequented um, there's a rough organization and then there's piles of books on every flat surface. Is um, Hernando's attempt at this universal library, is it closer to a modern library with things on shelves, or is he just piling stuff up as it comes in and, oh, I'll put that away when I get around to it?
1: So it was a lot closer to a modern library than anything that had gone before. And in fact, um, Hernando's books were on bookshelves uh, and and, and he invented the modern bookshelf. So what do you think of as a bookshelf, as in a shelf that is attached to the wall on which books sit, uh, you know, standing on uh, on end, standing vertically with their spines pointing out? That was Hernando's invention uh, in order to deal with the extraordinary number of books that he had. Uh, to store. So books prior to that tended to be stored in chests um, or simply to be piled um, on tables. Uh, again, most even even great collections, university collections or monastic collections before this were usually a couple of hundred, maybe a thousand books. Um, And, you know, again, the attitude towards information was was very different. Um, So this is the very early stages of of what's been charted as a kind of revolution in the ways of thinking about our relationship towards books. Most people during this period would read a a small number of books a lot of time. So they would read the Bible um, and Virgil and Cicero over and over and over. And we're heading towards the era, the era of you know, you think about the 18th century novel and uh, Dr Johnson and people like that, where you'd read a, a very large number of books only once, right? So you'd be uh, there's this massive revolution in the ways in, in which people think about um, their relationships to books: few books many times, or many books few times, right? Uh, and Hernando's on the on the kind of leading edge of that. So his his library. Uh, was much more like our libraries than than uh, anything that went before. Uh, it was his books were on shelves, and he was in the process of trying to put them into various subject orders um, as, at the end of his life. Uh, but as I say, the scale of the task quickly was becoming overwhelming. So uh, his they were struggling, and you know, struggling to put everything in order. And of course, books you know, with this aim to make it a universal library. Uh, books in Latin and Greek, but also Hebrew and Arabic and um, Gez, which is the the, the Ethiopian tongue we're flooding in. And so the ability to organize all this information uh, was becoming a, an increasingly kind of desperate and challenging task.
0: So it is customary that we give our guests the last word on the show. So you've got about... Uh... Three minutes to make your pitch, Edward. Why do you think that the idea of the universal library is relevant in today's world?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's astoundingly relevant. I actually, when, when being uh, asked to come on the show, I was struggling to think of anything historical, which I thought of as irrelevant. Hernando's <laughs> um, uh, story, I think, is particularly relevant. You know, it, it's a story about the last information revolution, one which we're, you know, we're, li- we're currently living mm-hmm. through an information revolution. Um, uh, And, uh, you know, no one needs convincing in this day and age that an exponential rise in the amount of information available can rapidly change the world. Uh, Obviously, between social media and search algorithms and the Internet and so on and so forth, um, our world has been changed almost beyond recognition in the last 15 to 20 years. And Hernando's story is about, you know, the last time that this happened uh, during print when uh, the amount of information available shifted the way in which the world works. So it gives us an ability to look at that with a little bit of historical distance so we can think about the ways in which we might want to try and avoid some of the same disasters uh, that arose out of the last information uh, uh, revolution, and and I, I suppose uh, try and, uh, as I say, not fall into the same into the same holes this time. Um, so that would be my pitch for its relevance. <laughs>
0: well, and in nearly five hundred shows, I can think of maybe four or less uh, things that we thought were irrelevant. Um, in history, the only one that comes to mind is an early show on Roman coinage that was a, a bit of a stretch. But
1: uh... well, I, I would be I would be very happy to argue the extraordinarily important uh, relevance of, of Roman coinage. But uh, we'll have to leave that for another time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have your number. We'll take you up on that at some point. Um, when we come back, we'll wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
1: You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2.
0: This concludes the 495th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song of our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zap My name is Brett Menard. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Edward Wilson Lee, 1596 fellow at Sydney Sussex College in the University of Cambridge, who talked with us about his book, The Catalog of Shipwrecked Books, Christopher Columbus, His Son, and the Quest to Build the World's Greatest Library. The history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. This is ROI Relevant or Irrelevant on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We'd like to wish all listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb: Hoza Pula Nala. Peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.